Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. Praise the Lord. We, uh, if you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13, John chapter 13, and that in itself is an exciting announcement. We've, the music this morning um, just harmonized so beautifully with, uh, with the message, the Word of God. And God willing, we uh, will get out on time. It's like the, the little girl and her mom went to church, and the pastor was preaching, and he preached for about an hour, and she turned to her, her mom and said, Mama, what comes after him? She said, Thursday, I think. But well, we won't be here till Thursday, but we will dig into the Word of God this morning. Interesting enough, <clears throat> uh, the, the early church, as well as the background of this, back in Exodus chapter 12, they ate the Passover meal. Now, we, it's a good thing probably that we don't do that because you'd be sleeping through the message. But they ate the Passover meal, and they were instructed by the Lord to eat it with their loins girded, ready to move, ready to move out, to get on with it. God was delivering them. Um, and Jesus, this is the background of, or this, that's the background of what we're going to study this morning uh, is Jesus and his disciples uh, eating the Passover meal and uh, then sharing in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray just a minute. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for this time. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you are mindful of us. Before anything was that is, you set your affection on us individually to love us and to have us. And Lord, we thank you that you control salvation. If we did, we'd mess that up. We just thank you that in your infinite wisdom that you made a way for us to come back into fellowship with you. Pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts and let us see things from your point of view. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's begin by locating the passage, John chapter... 13, and I won't read it in advance if you'll pay close attention to the text. Jesus ended his public ministry at the end of John chapter 12. At the end of John chapter 12, his public ministry was over. And then here in John chapter 13, he begins his last private interview with his immediate 12 disciples. And one of those dropped out. Um, here in John chapter 13. But he began his last private interview with, with this 12. 
And this is the place in John chapters 13 through 16 to find our resources in Christ. If you want to know what our resources are as believers to operate in this age, John chapters 13 through 16 are the place to find those. And Jesus was delineating those uh, with his 12, actually his 11 at the end of this chapter. For example, um, in John 13, 34, he gives us his love. John 14, 27, he gives us his peace. John 15, 8, he gives us a second test to prove we are his disciples, that we bear much fruit and glorify the Father. And in John 15, 11, he gives us his joy. Those are only examples of the goods that he delineates to us in John's chapters 13 through 16 that tell us what resources we as Christians have to operate with in this age. So if you want to know what you have, that is the place to find them. Now, a question arises, since that is true, why does the story of foot washing come first? And the things that he wanted to teach them and the things that he wanted to advise them that we have as resources, why did foot washing come first? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you see, Jesus wasn't teaching foot washing. Let's get that right on the table right up front. He was not teaching foot washing. In fact, if you go back to the background of this passage in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord told them to gird their loins, with, and that's being ready for movement. He told them to have their staff in their hand and their sandals on. I don't recall anywhere where he told them to wash feet. But yet, you know, in Christendom today, we've wrapped Christianity around that as if it were one of the ordinance of the church. There are only two. There are only two, and that's not one of them wasn't what he was teaching at all. He was teaching something far, far more necessary than washing feet. And this resource is absolutely necessary. Before we will ever see, take, or use the other resources, and that is the resource of humility. 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 And he begins to catalog the resources in John 13, and he starts that catalog by teaching them humility. You see, humility is not what I was taught early in life that it was. It's, humility is not a posture. It's not a, you know, oh, poor me kind of thing. Not at all. Humility is honest realism about yourself. Humility is accepting what God says about you to be true. That's what humility is. You know, and all this mock and false humility that says, well, you know, God did it. Well, yeah, he did. But by his own self-imposed deduction, he chooses not to work in this world independent of us. He chooses to work through his children, his body. The same way you work, the same way you operate, Jesus operates through us, his body. You know, it's like the two farmers that were talking, and the, the one says, Dear brother, the Lord sure has made a beautiful place out of your farm. He said, Yes, and you should have seen him when he had it all to himself. 
You see, we pray like it all depends on him because it does, but we must work like it all depends on us because God chooses to use us to do the work. Humility. It's a Latin word. comes from the word humus, which is the word for dirt or earth. Man came from dirt by a miracle of God, and because of sin and corruption, he's going back to dirt. And in between the time he came from dirt and he goes back to dirt, he ought to spend a lot of time in touch with his native element. He ought to spend a lot of time down, down before the Lord. You see, that word is also where we get our word human from. You know, it's, it's impossible to be truly human without humility. So humility is honest realism. And it means you think of yourself as you really are, as you really are. If you are a capable person, it is not proud or vain to say that you believe you're a capable person. No, that just happens to be the truth. If you are a child of God, it is not proud or vain to proclaim from the rooftops that you're a child of God. If God says you can do all things through Christ, then it is not proud or vain to acknowledge that. If you have all these resources in Christ, you just admit it. You don't go around with this defeated posture, and at the same time, you don't go around strutting like the NBC peacock. <laughs> no, humility means that you recognize exactly what God says about you to be true. So Jesus is not teaching foot washing here. He's teaching humility, and he gives us several massive truths along the way. Let's look at them. First, there's a perfect picture here of our divine resources. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, so everything that happens in this text, in this passage, depends on what Jesus knew. He knew that God had given all things into his hands. He had come from God, and he was going back to God. So everything here depends on what Jesus knew. Now remember that Jesus was a true human being. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Yet he was only 100%. That math doesn't work for us today. But it's such a divine mystery. In fact, the greatest miracle that God ever did was probably the person of Jesus Christ. To have two natures that are so radically different brought together and fused without being confused, without being distorted on either side, you know, and in one moment he's saying, I thirst, and the next moment he stands up and rebukes the waves and they obey his voice. See, we, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. That is the majesty and the wonder of our Savior. Now, <clears throat> he was absolutely perfect. His perfection in infancy was innocence, and his perfection in adulthood was holiness. And at every stage, he was an absolutely perfect human being. And verse 3 tells us that he knew three, three things. One, he knew his sovereignty. All things had been given into his hands. Now, remember, these are the same hands that are in a few moments are going to pick up a towel and start washing feet. Wow. So he perfectly knew 
that he was the king and lord over everything. Second, he knew his divine origin. He had come from God. And third, he knew his divine destination. He was going back to God. Therefore, he could get down and wash the disciples' feet because he was totally secure. Totally secure. Now, why could not the disciples get down and wash one another's feet? Well, they couldn't because they were too insecure. They didn't know what he knew. So they were totally insecure. You see, they had just been rebuked earlier by arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest. And James and John even got their mother involved in that process. I mean, they were very serious about having the chief seats in the kingdom. And Jesus asked them, he said, now, what was it you argued about along the way? You know, and then they looked real sheepish. The ten, <laughs> the ten got upset, not because James, they, they wouldn't tolerate that kind of what they perceived as arrogance. They got upset because they thought James and John were going to get those chief, sheep, uh, chief seats that they weren't going to get them. So Jesus had just shortly before this rebuked them for jostling among themselves over who would be the greatest. You see, in their insecurity, they could not get down to do what he did. And here's why. Only secure people will ever fully, freely, and finally serve God. Only secure people. To the degree that you're insecure, to the degree that you're unsure about the outcome, you will serve yourself. You will serve yourself. Dave, I love you, brother, but i got to make sure I've got it, and I'm holding on to it. And I'll pray for you. <laughs> you see, only secure people will ever serve God, ever, because you'll serve yourself to whatever degree you're insecure. Now, has it occurred to you that the things Jesus knew about himself are 100% true of every child of God? Every child of God. The Father has given everything into your hands and my hands as certainly as he has given them into the hands of Jesus, if you're a child of God. Now, it's easy for us to believe that God has given everything into the hands of Jesus, but when we talk about, when we turn that frame on ourselves, we have trouble believing that. Well, so where's the truth? Is it in what we believe or is it in the Word of God? You see, truth is what God says. It is not what I want. It is not what you want. It is not what I think. It is not what you think. It is not what we think. It is not what we hope, surmise, or deduce. Truth is only what God says. So listen to the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. It said, Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. And then he goes on to give a catalog of those things, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or things present, or things to come, or life, or death. All things are yours. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're in Christ, and all things belong to Him. Another verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. All things to enjoy. 
Another verse, Romans 8.32, says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? So if he gave us the Christmas gift, if he gave us the gift that bankrupted heaven, why wouldn't he give us the wrapping paper and the string? So all things are yours. All things are yours. Secondly, if you are born again, born from above, John 3, 3, if you are born again, you are as certainly a child of God as Jesus. You have come from God. Jesus was born out of the womb of his earthly mother, but he didn't have an earthly father. And he came through by miraculous birth. If you are a Christian this morning, you also have been born right out of the nature and character of God by a miraculous birth. Miraculous birth. He had God as his father by birth, and I also have come out of God. My birth is in the Spirit. Now, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the authority to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name, which were born not of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of blood, but out of the nature and character of God. If you're a Christian this morning, you have a birth that came right out of God, by the Spirit of God. And... That makes you have a divine nature. You still retain the old one. You still retain the flesh. And they're at war with each other all the time. You can find that in Galatians 5 and 6, chapters 5 and 6. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that he might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. King James says, by his own will begat he us. Y'all know what begetting is? <laughs> huh? He brought us forth as his children, right out of the nature and character of God. So I am as much a son of God as Jesus is. Now I'm not the same type. The Bible calls him the only begotten, the monogenes, the only gene type son of God. You see, that's the difference between me and him. You say, well, now, is there a contradiction? If we're sons and daughters, and he's a son, and he's the only gene-type son, then how do you reconcile that? Well, the Bible's very clear on that. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Isaac being the only begotten son of Abraham. Was he really only the only son that, that he had? No. Ishmael was born 13 years before. Yet Isaac is called the only begotten son because he's the only gene-type son. Ishmael was born out of wedlock, outside of the marriage union, and God did not bless that. So Jesus is the only begotten son, the only begotten son of God. Now, thirdly, I'm a different type of son. I'm the same son, but I'm a different kind, different type. You know, it's like Archie and Jughead, the cartoons. I got a lot of illustrations from cartoons. Kind of tells you something about my mind. But, <laughs> but uh, 
Archie and Jughead, and, and they were talking, and, and they were talking about just this subject. And, and Jughead said, now, you mean, you mean to tell me, Archie, that, that you look just like Jesus? He said, I wouldn't say you couldn't tell us apart, <laughs> but I am a son. Thirdly, since I'm a son by birth, I'm a co-sharer or a partaker of the divine nature of Christ. That's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This nature came from God, and it's going back to where it came from. So I, too, am certain of my divine destination, just like Jesus. In John 3, 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the term born again in the Greek is one word. It's the word anathen, and it literally means born from above. From above. And that is exactly where we've come from if you're a believer this morning. The tense of the Greek verb that Jesus used means to be born one time from above. So he didn't say you must be born again and again and again and again and again. That's what he would have had to say if you could lose it. But he didn't say that. One time, born from above. The moment that I received Christ, I received that new nature. I received my human nature by birth. I received the divine nature by birth also that is just as real as the biological birth. Just as real. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature, a new creation. Altogether, a new creation. Because that new nature has come in. Now, if I know those three things, just as Jesus knew them, I can volunteer to get down at my brother's feet and wash them. But if I'm too proud to do that, it's because my attention is on myself instead of what I have from God. And if my attention is on my resources instead of Jesus... I realize that I can lose them. And that's exactly why the disciples couldn't get down and wash one another's feet. They were too insecure. Too insecure. All right. Point two, there's a perfect picture here of our eternal salvation and our sanctification. Look at verses 8 through 10. Very, very important thing. Very, very important thing to know. Peter said to him, to the Lord, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now remember, in verse 7, Jesus had already given us the first clue that he was teaching something far deeper than foot washing here. Verse 7 says, Jesus answered and said to Peter, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. If he was only teaching them foot washing, they could see that. They could see that. This was a very, very common occurrence in any home. It was a common courtesy in any home. Very common courtesy. Because one of the issues in the East is one of the terms of hospitality. It is a standard there of the culture. When you go to someone's house, they have to feed you. See, people come to our house, we might offer them something to drink, but rarely will we offer them food. 
But that's not the way their culture is in the East, and it's still that way today. I was in the Philippines, and a pastor picked me up at the bus station on his little uh, 90cc moped, (laughs) dirt bike. And, you know, here I am with this big, huge backpack, and I outweighed him by about 100 pounds, (laughs) and I'm wrapped around him on this little 90cc. (laughs) But he picked me up there. And he said, we're going to go visiting some of, the, some of the saints, some of the members of the church. And he took me successively to four homes, and at every home, they fed us. <laughs> you know, and about the second one, they're looking up at me going, oh, large, black American. We just keep, you know. <laughs> so they, they just kept piling it on. <laughs> and finally, after the second house that we visited, I said, Brother Nestor, I said, it, you know, I, I understand the culture, I understand, I, and I don't want to offend anybody, but is it okay if I fix my own, you know, so I can shorten up these portions? They're, they're you know, they're going to kill a brother in here. <laughs> but that's one of the courtesies, common courtesies in the East still today. Well, back then, also washing the feet was a common courtesy before the meal because they didn't sit around the table such as you see our Christian artifacts of the Lord, the Last Supper, and the ink, wrong, but thanks for playing. They didn't sit around the table that way. They laid out, reclined on their side on the floor, had a lazy Susan in the middle, and that's the way they ate. That's how John was able to lean back on the breast of Jesus. You know, that's kind of hard to do when you're seated side by side. Okay. You see, our Christian artifacts often do us a disservice, but in that position, your feet were likely to be near someone's head. Okay? And you remember, they didn't have nice paved roads like we have, and the animals all use the same paths. Okay, Rob? <laughs> they use the same paths, and, and they, you know, animals don't, you know, they just kind of use the bathroom wherever they are as they're going. You know, that happens, and so the path would have all of this stuff, and they wore sandals, okay? So they were kind of squishing around that stuff. You, <laughs> you wouldn't want that near your head during the meal. So a common courtesy when you came into the home was to wash the feet. So this was something they knew about, but they, can, they were so insecure that they couldn't volunteer to get down that low. So Jesus had already shown that he wanted to wash all of their feet. Now, in Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the two pronouns in verse 8, you and my, are side by side. So Simon said to Jesus, Lord, you, my feet, will never wash. You see, with those two pronouns side by side, it showed his sense of horror. You... Lord, wash my feet? No. That's the job for the lowest slave in the household. And it really was. It sounds like humility, but it is the most arrogant kind of pride imaginable. Some time ago, a brother said to me, he said, Brother, I heard you speak, and I think it's presumptuous for a man to say he knows he's saved and cannot be lost. Well, I think it's presumptuous for a man to disagree with God. (laughs) If God says, I am saved and saved forever, why would I not declare that? 
What must I hide about that? That's the Word of God. It is the height of presumption. It's the blasphemy of presumption or the presumption of blasphemy for a man to disagree with God. And here's Simon Peter, the disciple, disagreeing with the Lord. Think about that. No, Lord. (laughs) You know, those two words don't belong in the same sentence. (laughs) They just don't even go together at all. No wonder the scripture says it came to Simon, used his fleshly name because he was clearly acting in the flesh. No, Lord, not my feet. So he disagreed with Jesus while still calling him Lord. How often do we do that? And we got the spotlight on Simon Peter, but but let's turn that on ourselves. How often do we do that? You know? I mean, and we sing it, for he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead. And, and we're very melodious, and, you know, we're very, looking very holy. <laughs> okay. While all at the same time, we have renegade provinces in our heart that are saying, no, Lord. Give? Eh, we'll give something. No, Lord. Pray? On Wednesday night? Well, we pray on Sunday, isn't that cool? (laughs) In our hearts, we're saying, no, Lord. Now, we don't say that openly because, you know, we got to get our halos out and polish them up, you know, make everybody think that that everything's all right, you know. It's part of the problem with Christianity today is it's easy, just like Judas, to look like everybody else. It's easy. It's easy. You know, Howard Hendricks said, you know, part of the problem with Christianity today is nobody wants to kill us anymore in this country. You know, it's a forbidden subject. Some of you sitting there now saying, whoa, what's he doing? (laughs) Not into that. But it just happens to be the truth. Happens to be the truth. You know, it's today it's kind of politically correct to say that you're a Christian and you know it's all right. Everything is way cool right now. And as a result, we get complacent and we don't have that sense of urgency to see people come to Christ. As if it's always gonna be right nice. And it's not. It's just nice. So how many times do we in our hearts do that same thing? Verse 8, Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And the word never is the strongest negative Greek term in the Greek language. The strongest negative Greek term. Here's what it means. You will never, ever, until the ages, the ages, the word ages is actually part of that word. As long as eternity lasts, you will never wash my feet. And this is the disciple talking to the Lord. Now, want to see how unstable Simon is here? Check him out in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, after Jesus said, if, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He said, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Man, just give me the whole bath. <laughs> okay. If that's the way it is. 
He's just like us. And we know from verse 9, verses 9 and 10, that Peter didn't understand Jesus' statement. And thus he didn't understand the three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. You know, the Bible knows nothing, nothing of a salvation that's not past, present, and future. Nothing. You see, we can understand this, but they couldn't because what Jesus was referring to hadn't happened yet. The cross was still ahead of him. Shortly ahead of him, but still ahead of him. So they couldn't quite understand this the way we can. You see, in the past, God saved us from the penalty and the punishment of sin. He blasted Jesus to bless us on the cross. Those of us who have received him, who have welcomed him in, who place all of our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, rather than anything we can do ourselves, God has already blasted him with the punishment and penalty of your sin, all of your sins, all of your sins. See, all of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross. All of mine were. So that's in the past. In the present, we, were, we are saved, little by little, from the power of sin, from its control over our lives. As we go on seeing Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as in a mirror, that being the word of God, we are transformed from one stage of glory to the next stage to the next stage, and there's a gazillion stages of glory into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we're beholding in the word of God. And so in the past, we were saved from the penalty and punishment of sin. In the present, we're being saved from the power of sin. And then in the future, when we're glorified, we'll be saved from the actual possibility of sinning. The three tenses of salvation. Again, we can understand that, but they couldn't because it hadn't happened yet. Now, look with me at verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed, King James says, He who has washed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you, it's major emphasis in the text, you stand clean, but not all of you. Man, did he ever tell us worlds of truth in that one verse. Just massive amounts of truth. First of all, he told them not all of you because Judas is there. You see, Judas is not an example of a person who had salvation and lost it. Judas was never saved. Amen. Judas never had the big bath. Was never saved. You know, he was there every time the doors of the church opened. He was with them, looked just like them, accompanied with them, ate with them, slept with them, etc., etc., and was never saved lost under the eaves of the chapel bell. I wonder if there's any in here this morning. Lost under the eaves of the chapel bell, trampling God's courts on a weekly basis, two and three times a week, thinking that your efforts toward him are going to cause him to wink in your direction. has nothing to do with it. has nothing to do with it. Judas was never saved. That's one of the things he tells us in verse 10, 10 and 11. But there's some awfully wonderful truth that applies to us. There are two different Greek words translated by our English word wash there. NASB, N-A-S-B, actually 
changes the word. It's he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. And indeed, there are two totally different Greek words that are used there. The first one is the word luo, luo, L-O-U-O, means to take a full bath. The second one is the word nipto, which means a local rinsing of that part of your body, such as your feet or your hands or your face or whatever might get dirty. So here's what Jesus said to Simon. He who has had the full bath, that's salvation, then he only needs the local rinsing of whatever part of him gets dirty. And he is clean every inch. Literally, that's what it says. Clean every inch. Then he adds something. He says, you stand clean. Stand clean. So what is our salvation? It's that big, big bath where one time and for all time, God plunges you into the flood of Calvary. And when you come up, you come up clean. We sang about that this morning. And brother, I appreciate Jay and, and, and the band, the music, spoke of the blood and the cross. That's exactly what we're saying here. Jesus said, that's what the big bath is. You're plunged under that flood, that cleansing blood. And when you come up, you come up clean. And it's a perfect tense verb, so it covers your past, present, and future. You are permanently clean. That's what our salvation is. Now that raises some questions, and this passage answers them. Speaking of our salvation, for example, Titus 3 and 5 says, It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. Why? Because we haven't done any righteous works. We can't do any righteous works. It's not in us as human beings to do righteous works apart from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you see, if you could save yourself, it would not be by grace. If you could help yourself get saved or keep yourself saved, it would not be by grace. Romans 11.6 and Romans 4.4 4 both tell us that whatever is not of grace is a matter of work. And whatever is a matter of work is also a matter of debt. So if you could work and earn your salvation, God would owe you salvation. That's not grace. Not grace at all. So if I ever get to heaven, all the credit and all the blame goes to God. <laughs> if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you may be sure someone else put him there. <laughs> if you ever see one sinner in heaven, and there are going to be millions you may be sure somebody else put him there. God did it. Salvation is of the Lord and only of the Lord. No man can climb up another way. <clears throat> so it's all by grace, through faith. And the faith is part of the salvation package God gives. Isn't that incredible? So you can't just have faith. You can't conjure up your own faith. You know, people say, well, you just got to have faith. How do you just have faith? I don't know how you do that. The Scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and without faith it's impossible to please God. So it's by grace through faith, and the faith is part of the salvation package God gives. So it's all about Him. It's all salvation is of the Lord. 
So Jesus said, once you've had the big bath, you don't need the big bath again. But if when, when, I said when, a believer sins, <laughs> they're like, well, I wonder who he's talking about now. <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> when a believer sins, gets dirty again, he only needs the local rinsing. That's 1 John 1, 9 and other related passages. And you see, 1 John 1, 9 deals with confession. And I'm firmly convinced that we really, really are kind of, kind of twisted in our thinking about what confession is for. It's not for the forgiveness of sin. Read that passage very carefully in context. It's not for the forgiveness of sin. I'll say it again. It's not for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus forgave your sin when you accepted him. He forgave your sins when they were blasted on him at the cross. All of your sin, past, present, and future. Confession is not for forgiveness. It's for fellowship. You see, when a believer sins, the fellowship is broken. The fellowship. I've said before, my son could slap my face. The fellowship is broken, but that's still my son. I can't change that, and neither can he, because he's my son by birth. If you're God's child, you're God's child by birth. How do you lose a birth? How do you become unborn? It can never be as if you were never here. <laughs> okay? You are his child by birth. And so when you sin, the fellowship is broken. The fellowship. We know this by the actual term for confession. The word confess is homologeo in Greek. Homo means the same. Logeo is where we get our word logos. It's where we get our word, to, it means to speak. It means we also get our word logic from that word. It means to speak the same logic that God does. So in confessing our sins, we simply agree with God. That's what confession is. No three-week apology necessary. No trying to make it up to God because you can't. If you could, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. So no, it is to agree with God. You simply, in prayer, get before the Lord and agree with God about the sin. He has declared something about your sin and my sin. And you simply agree with him. And he says in that instant, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. So the local rinsing of the feet is a perfect picture of our sanctification. Our sanctification. God just doesn't leave anything out. Finally, point three. There's a perfect picture here of the Savior and his entire eternal redeeming history. The picture goes all the way back to eternity past. And in this passage, Jesus did seven things. Seven things. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that seven is God's number symbolizing completeness. Just what you would expect from the Son of God. What did Jesus do? Verse 4, he stood up. Secondly, he took something off. Third, he put something on. Fourth, he poured something out. Fifth, he washed the disciples' 
and that which he poured out, and so finished the job that it says he wiped them. Verse 6, he went back to his original place and took his original garments again. And the seventh thing, he sat down, signifying a totally finished work. Dear brothers and sisters, this is an acted parable. You must learn to read the actions of Jesus as well as the words of Jesus. This is an acted parable. All of the actions of Jesus are parables. They teach us something. And a parable is a window through which you can see a truth, or it's a handle that God places in your hand that allows you to pick up a truth and carry it out. This morning we've been singing many, many songs about the blood, about Calvary, about that cleansing flood. This is an acted parable that shows us just that. Just that. You see, all in eternity past, Jesus had been in fellowship with the Father forever, catching the Father's heart, learning his trade. You say, what? I challenge you to read Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 and following, and tell me who that applies to if it, if it doesn't apply to Jesus. He said, the Lord God has given me a tongue of disciple that I might know how to, to comfort the weary one with a word. So I gave my back to those who smite me, my, uh, my cheek to those that plucked out the beard. Just go down the list. It's all there. 750 years before Christ ever came to earth, Isaiah the prophet wrote, and they were the words of Jesus Christ. So when he came to earth, it was no problem for him to make disciples because he had been one for all eternity. It is amazing how much our Lord was dominated with that word, disciples. We hear everything else, revival. You know, we hear a lot of things that didn't dominate him. Didn't dominate him. I saw the other day where a church even had a Starbucks in the vestibule. Good Lord. <laughs> what are we doing in the name of heaven? <laughs> I'll leave that alone. A lot of people like Starbucks. Uh, <laughs> just happens to be the truth, though, Rod. <laughs> so Jesus had been in fellowship with the Father, enjoying himself, having the time of his eternity, and then one day he stood up. He interrupted the kind of fellowship that he'd had through all eternity with the Father. Number two, he put something off before he ever came down to earth. Philippians 2 says he stripped himself of his independent use of his divine rights and privileges and functioned as a man. He laid aside the garment of his visible glory. You know that in his prayer in John 17 when he said, Glorify me again with the glory I had with you before eternity began. So that's what he laid aside. He didn't lay aside his deity. He would have ceased to be who he was. No, he laid aside his independent use of his divine rights, his glory. Third, he put something on. Verse 4c tells us he took a towel, and the towel is the emblem of his humanity. Again, Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says, But Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. So he put something on. He took on flesh and blood like you and I, humanity, a human nature capable of dying. And at its lowest point, a towel is a slave's implement. What does a slave do? Goes around cleaning up messes after everybody else. What did Jesus do? We had made a mess of things. And he was the only one who could come and clean that up. The fourth thing, he poured something out. Verse 5 tells us, He went to the altar of the cross and volunteered the opening of his veins. We sang about that this morning. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stain. He volunteered the opening of his veins. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus voluntarily poured out his blood. You see, spilling is accidental. Pouring is deliberate. His blood wasn't spilled at Calvary. I hear that a lot. There was no spilling. That was intentional. Most intentional. I know we mean well when we say that. It's just not biblically correct, Mark. <laughs> it's just not in lockstep with the word. He poured out his blood. You can find that in John 10, verse 17 and 18. Then, number five, he washed them with that that he poured out. And he so thoroughly completed the job that the text says he wiped them with the towel. Totally finished work. Number six, still wearing the towel, never says that he took it off. Verse 12, never says he took that towel off. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is painting a picture here. And God is very, very jealous of his picture gallery. Maybe someday you'll get to ask Moses how jealous God is of his picture gallery. He told him to speak to the rock, and water came forth. The rock represented Jesus Christ. The people were murmuring again. He went back, and God told him to speak to the rock, and he struck the rock again. Well, Jesus was only crucified once, and that's why Moses didn't get to lead the people into the promised land. God's very jealous about his picture gallery, and here he's painting a picture. The towel is the emblem of his humanity. And when Jesus went back to glory, he did not leave that humanity here. He took it with him. That's why there are no bones. We can find the bones of Buddha, Confucius, and all of those others, even Mary. Yes, we can find her bones. She was no more divine than you or I. But you can't find the bones of Jesus Christ because he took that body with him. And that's why 1 Timothy 2 and 5 says that there is one mediator, one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there's a man in heaven this morning for me, wearing my nature, glorified in heaven for me. If it were not for that, anybody that'll take his shape can go the same place. Just trust in him. Just trust in him. If it weren't for that, we would have no hope. 
Then number seven, he sat down, signifying a totally finished work. You know, there was no place for the Old Testament priest to sit when he went in. They stood all the time because their work was never finished. Jesus totally finished the work. And in John 19.30, he said, to Telestai, it is finished. So there's a picture of our Savior and his entire redeeming history. What about you? If such an account of Jesus' work in bringing and securing salvation does not stimulate your heart to celebration and thanksgiving, there's A, something wrong with your celebrator, or B, you haven't had the big bath. One of the two. One of the two. The big bath is not being raised in a Christian home. You know, Ramona and I have taken several youth groups to the third world. We like to take them to Venezuela and Mexico and places like that. And, you know, we, we sit with them and ask them to give us their testimony to start with. We'll see where they are with the Lord. And, and I don't know how many times we've heard, well, I was raised in a Christian home. Sorry, but that's not the big bath. I was baptized. Sorry, that's not the big bath. That follows the big bath. That is a, a public testimony that you've had the big bath. My mother had faith. It's turnpike gate. You don't save twins. There are no twins in the family of God. One at a time. One at a time. And it's a personal matter. Lessons for our lives. Number one, humility is honest realism about yourself and accepting what God says about you to be true. Humility is honest realism about yourself and accepting what God says about you to be true. Jesus was teaching humility, not foot washing. So if you wonder why we don't wash feet here, now you know. <laughs> so he wasn't teaching foot washing. Number two, the words know and Lord do not belong in the same sentence. It's an oxymoron. It just doesn't belong there. They're mutually exclusive. As Lord, he has the right to control you the responsibility to correct you, and the resources to compensate you. So the words know and Lord do not belong in the same sentence. Number three, once you've trusted Jesus Christ for the big bath of salvation, you can never be lost. Once you've trusted Jesus Christ for the big bath of salvation, you can never be lost. That is the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? Because, <laughs> man, if you could lose it, Raj, I would. <laughs> long time ago. Long time ago. Number four. For the Christian, confession of sin is for restoration of fellowship as the relationship never changes once you're saved. For the Christian, 
Confession of sin is for restoration of fellowship as the relationship never changes once you're saved. Fifth and finally, if you've never placed all faith in Jesus for salvation, do so today and he'll plunge you beneath that cleansing flood into the big bath that we've sang so wonderfully about today. Thank you.